You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you guys to open up to Acts chapter 18 uh, this morning. And um, as you do that, I'm going to make my way and grab... uh, Oh, she did. Thank you so much. Elizabeth is going to be my rescuer. I might grab this table too. Um, we are, um, as you can see, uh, always on the brink of breaking the fire code in this room and then also downstairs. Uh, I just want to let you know we care about that. We're not head in the sand. We care. We know about the heat uh, that can be in the room. Thank you so much, Mr. Thomas. Uh, and so one of our um, just, you know, I think healthy, oh, Daniel. How about a hand for Daniel? This way, buddy. I need that one. Daniel. This way. This way. Um, yeah. Uh, health, health is not, uh, I'm going to, no, I'm just going to use this normal one. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs> Golly. It's like emperor's new groove up here. Get out of my sight. That's stupid. Uh, table. Um, yeah, it's just the ability to be, um, flexible about what we do, but also stubborn about who we are as, as a church. And so, uh, yeah, when it comes to services, we have, uh, March, the middle of March circled as we get up and ready for Easter to be sort of ready to not break the fire code um, on Easter and uh, to have uh, two services. We've tried before the 9 and 11. Here's the secret about two services is that everybody wants to be in the 10s. Raise your hand. You want to be in the 10s. You don't want to be in the 9s. You don't want to be in the 11s. You want to be in the 10s. And so our aim uh, this time around um, is to, around Easter uh, and through, through the Easter season, have um, a 9 and a 1030 option. That would be our goal. And in anticipation of that, just being ready for that from now until then, is just seeing our services um, uh, crafted and intentionally pulled back into from 90 minutes into about an hour and 15 minutes. So we're skipping our intentional uh, little icebreaker question this morning. Sorry about that. And we're going to jump right into Scripture um, in Acts chapter 18. But if you're just joining us, we're usually making our way through whole books of the Bible. We're finding ourselves currently in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And uh, the picture I'm using up on the screen as an image is that of a photo album. And um, I, I love, just like you, the Google Memories when you get on there, you look at that picture that seems like it was like just yesterday, and it was so long ago, and uh, you were so much thinner, and you had more hair, and so forth. Um, and, and pictures are, are, are powerful because, what does the saying say? Like a picture tells a thousand words, um, and, uh, and maybe like a name or a zip code or uh, a job occupation could, occupation could remind you of what you do, but a picture somehow can communicate in a profound way who you are and, and where you come from. And that's what I think I could use as a metaphor for the book of Acts it's, it's a lot of pictures. It's a myriad of pictures, a quilt of all these different little events in early church history um, that are not really there for us to copycat. They're not there for us to say, this is the template for the book of Acts, the way the church should always act and the way that I'll always act and the way that I should try and measure my life up against Paul's. The goal, I don't think, of the book of Acts is so much to do what the apostles were doing, but follow the one that he followed. That actually the book of Acts is not a a narrative of, of actions that celebrate the apostles so much as the actions of the Holy Spirit that was in their midst. We're not supposed to be paying attention to the apostles. We're supposed to be paying attention to the spirit that the apostles were embodied by, and that's our spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit that is, great, is, is falling and resting on this place that calls us to be witnesses. Is that same spirit. If there's just a few words that I think come out of the pages of that scripture and speak to us even now in 22, I think 2023, is that Acts would want to tell us, like, let's finish what he started. The beginning passage of O Theophilus, like why I wrote the book, is I wanted to share with you what Jesus started to do, what he started to do, because the implication of that is that we would read it not just thinking it was something that started and ended, but it's still continuing. 
that there is a continuation of that, that that's really right here in our midst. And so we, that's where we are in, in Acts chapter 18. Um, before I was um, a, a pastor here at the church, um, lead pastor at City Lights, I was uh, the teaching pastor, the equipping pastor, so I handled the groups and I taught on Sundays. And before that, I was the, uh, I was the youth pastor. You guys ever know a youth pastor before or anybody in here was a youth pastor? Um, it's, a, it's a great job. Uh, Andre could vouch for it in the back. Andre uh, has been, or was the youth pastor here for about 10 years here at City Lights. I was at a youth pastor at a, at a different church. Um, I was thinking of some great memories. Nathaniel Collier is in the house today. Where's Nathaniel? There's Nathaniel. So a uh, couple of great memories uh, of, of youth group Nathaniel. I think it was about in the eighth grade, maybe the ninth grade, on our first uh, trip, I decided to take the kids skiing to uh, this place called Ski Beach in North Carolina which really shouldn't be called skiing. It should be called ice skating down the side of a mountain uh, on just straight up ice with no, no snow whatsoever. So um, yeah, we're, we're more as a youth pastor breed. You got to be a little more shoot first, aim second, kind of, a, kind of a, mo- a mentality. And so we just figure it out, you know? And so we go down there and uh, one of the uh, aim pieces of when you take kids to go on a youth group skiing trip is you should teach them how to ski. That's the part that you forget to do. So you got the pants and the goggles and all the cool hats and you're going skiing and you don't teach kids how to stop. Uh, And so we go down, let's just go down the most steep one. It's right in the front. We'll just go down this one and everything else is easy. That's the strategy. So we get all the kids up there. I went down first. I, you know, pretended like I knew what I was doing. I didn't. And I got down to the bottom just to go down there first to make sure everything's okay. Give everybody a thumbs up. And uh, all the kids are coming down, and out of the corner of my eye, I see Nathaniel. There he is, Nathaniel, and he's about the same height, same, same length of hair. Nathaniel's hair is blowing so fast back behind his head. He's going so fast, and he is not, you know, in skiing, he's not going sideways. He's not going right or left. He's going straight. He's going just straight down this ice, icicle mountain and uh, looking like he's having a good time, but I'm anticipating when that time is about to end. He gets to the bottom of that mountain, and he was probably, I swear, was going 40. I mean, going real fast, Nathaniel. Hair's flapping back in the wind, and uh, goes all the way through the picnic table. There's about a 30 or 40-foot runway, and then there was just this embankment, and then Nathaniel just disappeared. He just went through this, like, orange little thing and disappeared, and I thought, I don't know how, whatever else is that embankment. I hope that it's not a pit of spikes or something. So anyways, <laughs> he dropped down there, and he... It, it reminded me, Nathaniel, I'm only telling you this now because we can laugh about it. We were worried for a minute. I was totally worried, but we can laugh about it now. You're still alive and walking. It was like Lloyd Christmas at the airport when he was just like crumpled up on the ground with his skis like all over the place. Good times, good times, good memories. Uh, we ran a talent show. I'll be quick on this one just because Nathaniel was in the house. I had to ham it up a little bit. But um, this kid named James, we couldn't find him. He was supposed to be like number five on the talent show docket and number four and number three and number four went and we couldn't find James. And then uh, we figured out, we were hearing through the PA system, this like cackling laugh. James didn't tell us what his act was. Here's what you ready? What this is act? This is a youth group. This is Wednesday night youth group. James has white, just Heath Ledger Joker paint all over his face and a pencil and a card and runs the entire Why So Serious speech on all these terrified little eighth grade girls. Which, again, was nervous in the moment. We can laugh about it now. Um, we used to just, again, um, shoot for the same second. Like, we used to just go on treasure hunts. We would, we would ask the Lord. We would say, um, send us, Lord, out. These are 8th graders, ninth graders, 11th graders. Tell us to go. Show us places to go, whether it's, um, the, whether it's the mall, whether it's Haywood Mall. Tell us to go. Show us places to go and target in these other places, the places that we might meet and encounter people that need the love of God, the power of God, 
and the prayer of, of the church. And we would go out and people would just be in tears. The, the teenagers touching people that 30-year-old people can't reach because like teenagers are just so innocent and, 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 and authentic and real right there. And they were praying for the love of God to encounter people. And, and I'll just never forget that stuff. And so a lot of uh, great memories, a lot of important lessons. I'll tell you, one of the most important lessons, though, that I learned uh, through all, all that um, was something along the lines of this. 2014, uh, me and Kyra, we just went a different direction, decided to step out of youth ministry. And so that meant we were there for about four years and bittersweet memories to kind of come to a close there. And, um, and it was in that next year I went back to teaching and I, I learned a very, very important lesson, especially for somebody that works in ministry, a vocational pastor. And that is that there's a difference between um, ministry, um, when you work in vocational ministry, and your job. There's an important difference when you work as a youth pastor, work as a vocational pastor, work as a teaching pastor, between um, ministry, your personal ministry, the influence that you make to advance the kingdom in the church you work, and just your job. Like, there are things that they don't tell you in seminary that, like, when you become a youth pastor, you're just basically a secretary. You still work on Gmail, you still work on iCalendar, you still work on Google Docs, and you're organizing a bunch of events. And yes, you're organizing like sacred services and meeting places for God to meet with people, but don't get that conflated with the fact that you're getting a paycheck and it's just a job. It's really important if you ever get a job in a ministry or you're thinking about getting a job in ministry, like the difference between a job and a ministry, like at the end of the day, when I left that place and I had to, you know, like everybody's got ego, everybody's got their, you know, things that they work through, is like they just replace you. Like they will hire another youth pastor. Right? That is a job. They pay you X amount of money. You work X amount of hours. You have a certain amount of staff abilities. There's a whole bullet point of things that you do on your job list and I do on my job list. And that was a job. Like youth ministry is a calling, but on one side, it's just a job. And my kids are never going to get another dad. That church will always get another youth pastor. See how that works, right? And so here's the other thing that really gets you. It's important to learn, and I'm saying this, I think, for everybody in terms of ministry, vocational ministry, and just personal ministry is is that ultimately, like, you know, that ministry grew and it had whatever, a couple hundred kids, and you would have the big events in the camp and the speakers and people would change and all those kinds. So it, was a, it was a great thing. But at the end of the day, when I, when I hitch the wagon and, and ride off, right, uh, from, from that time and season of ministry into the sunset, it's like really, you know, you can influence maybe 100 and whatever X amount of people, but really you're only impacting that small group of about 3 and 12 and maybe even 60. Like at the end of the day, there's this really powerful opportunity that you have, I think, from a ministry perspective to like influence people that you maybe don't even know as much, but really in terms of impact, in terms of life change, you're really just affecting the three. You're just affecting the 12. You're just affecting that small inner circle. And so anyways, the moral of the story for people that work in vocational ministry or not is that although sometimes some of us will work for ministry and work in vocational places, all of us are always doing ministry. So pay attention to this. I thought this was a really interesting little set of words um, in our Acts 1-8 passage that drives us through the whole book of Acts. It's a linchpin passage, and this is what Jesus says about um, being, a, being a witness. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then it says this, this is, pay attention to this little phrase, and you will be. Jesus says this to the disciples that are around him. You will be, not might be or could be or should be. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. So there's two observations I want to make about that little clause in there, you will be my witnesses. Number one is that according to Jesus, for a Christian, mission is not optional, it's inevitable. It's like, it's not up to you. Like, here's the plot twist and the big sabotage that the Holy Spirit's running on your life. Like, you don't get to choose 
to be on mission. You're on a mission. You're on one. I mean, it's like, you know, you see one of those, like, people on those roller coasters, and they sit there, and the video camera turns on, and they just, like, pass out, you know, and they're just, like, you know, too terrified to be on this roller coaster. Like, they can't change the fact, like, they might fall asleep and try and, like, escape the fact that they're on a roller coaster, but they're still on the roller coaster. And likewise, the sabotage for us is whether or not we know it, like it, choose it, we are on the mission. And secondly, that witness, to say you will be my witnesses, it's not that you will witness as a verb, you will be a witness as a noun, means that witness is not just something we do, it's something we are. Witness is not an action, it's an identity. So despite kind of the, um, the stereotypes, I guess, of what we would say of going to witness or being a missionary, despite our stereotypes, our, our preloaded social conditions, actually to be a witness is not an act- optional action, it is an inevitable identity. Being a witness is not an optional action, something I turn on and turn off and do on Tuesdays and Sundays. It's not an optional action, it's an inevitable identity. So you might have a dog in your house, maybe you have two dogs or three dogs, or you've been to your friend's house with dogs. Like, there are some dogs that are more doggier than other dogs, okay? There are some dogs that bark real loud, and they drool more, and they do lots of stereotypical dog things. And then there are dogs that don't act like dogs. Maybe they act more like chia pets. I don't know, they just sit in the corner and they don't do anything. But no matter what the action of that dog is doing, you see where I'm going with this? The dog being more doggier does not make them more of a dog. A dog is a dog because they're a dog. And, the, and likewise, well, I think what Jesus is saying is whether or not you like it, choose it, want it, know about it, or a reticence to the fact, you're a witness with a mission. And so your choice is not to be not a witness or not have a mission. You are a witness, and you have a mission. Okay, and so, and so this is how you can kind of land this then, is that really being a witness, like if this is the theme of us looking at a photo album, discovering who we are, a Christian, being a witness does not mean getting to the mission God wants us on so much as it means living into the mission God has us on. Being a witness does not mean getting to the mission God wants us on. It means more like living into the mission God has us on. When I was a teacher and I retired from youth ministry and went you know, back to teaching, um, having been in youth ministry, I'm realizing that ministry in the school was happening all the time, whether or not I knew it or liked it or wanted it to happen. And there were all kinds of witnesses. There were, there, there were witnesses that were super passive. You know, there were Christians in this school at Southside where me and Andre taught at school. He taught math and I taught social studies. There's, there's lots of different Christians and different styles of witnessing, but all of them were witnessing, whether it's by, by their attitude, by their smile. I would talk to somebody and I would like uh, know them for three months and wouldn't know they're a Christian. And then I would find out they're a Christian. I'd be like, I kind of knew you were a Christian. I could just see the fruits of the Spirit because you're just a Christian. And maybe they could have been bolder and maybe they could have been more intentional, but it didn't change the fact that they were a Christian in that place. There were other people that were more available, and they would set out their room for FCA or be involved in prayer meetings. And then there were some people like Andre who like literally would just pray for students between classes and in classes and preach the gospel to them. Whenever how active the witness is doesn't change the fact that a witness never stops being a witness and therefore always has a mission. So I want you to think about this. I mean, this is kind of where I want to um, point us to for the morning. But if you can imagine three concentric circles, we're always talking about followers with family and mission. Um, I, I would like to put up the personal mission slide there, uh, Tucker. Um, if you could think about the blue in the middle, um, the followers, um, if, it doesn't matter how, how, how extrovert of a person you are, how emotionally available of a person you are, pretty much all of us have somebody in that one to three range of people, and up there it says friends or spouse or partners or kids, of people that we if we're Christians, follow Jesus with, people that we would check in with before we made an important decision, people that we would um, 
we would practice oneness with, we would probably see them on a day-to-day basis. All of us, because we're a Christian, all Christians are missionaries, have a mission. And some of that mission is to our followers. Outside of that circle, there's a second circle of the 12, and that's what I would call spiritual family. So whereas your followers are people that you probably know for five and 10 years at a time, and you're not switching in and out, spiritual family is kind of like, you know, the people that you do Thanksgiving with. You see them every now and again. Maybe you see them weekly in a city group, or maybe you see them, they're actually blood family, and they're grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles, and you see them continually, but they give and receive, and they play an important part of your life, and you play an important part of their life, and because you're a Christian, every Christian's a missionary, and therefore you have a mission, that family is part of your mission. So the question is not, are those people in your life? The question is, is are you paying attention, and are you living on the mission that God has for you? Lastly, whether or not we like it or whether or not we signed up for it, you have a bunch of neighbors, people that you know on a first or second name basis, and they're people at your school and your work, and they're people that are connected to you through your hobbies, and they're the people that live right next door to you, and whether you like it or not or pick them or not, they're part of your mission because every Christianary, Christian is a missionary. And the question is, is not whether or not we have a mission, is whether or not we are available and accountable to the mission that we have. So that's the question that I would have for us uh, this morning, the intentional question. That is, uh, that is there on the screen, is uh, what percent of your heart and your mind um, and strength is being lived out on mission to the, um, to the mission that God has in front of you? All right, so let's take a look at the, uh, at, at, at the passages before us. So it says this in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Athens was chapter 17, where he debated um, the Greek philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics about the resurrection of Jesus. And he goes to Corinth, and Corinth is like Vegas. It's like Sin City. Have you ever read Corinthians, the book? It's like the most just dysfunctional people sleeping with their mother-in-laws, leader rivalries, just the most dysfunctional church ever. And so there's some churches like in Thessalonica, there's a lot of persecution externally, and then internally there's a lot of harmony, there's a lot of maturity. The Bereans are in Thessalonica, and they're reading the Bible, and they're checking Paul on his sermons to see if what he's saying is true. So going to Corinthians, you have no external persecution, but you got a lot of internal dysfunction, and that's where he's at. That's, that, that happens to be the specific location and zip code that Paul is for this chapter. So he meets, meets these, this couple, Jew, uh, this Jewish couple named Aquila and a, nat- a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So this is a power couple. This couple actually ends up at the end of Paul's greetings in three separate letters. He en- they end up in Romans, um, they end up in uh, Ephesians, they end up in a, l- a lot of these books. And so there's just this young couple who happen to be tent makers, and they don't have any kids, and they're just saying yes to the Lord, come what may. And their life has led them, because of persecution, out of Rome, now into Corinth. It's going to send them from Corinth into Ephesus, and then back all the way to, to, to Rome. And so therefore, they're part of like the transformation of the three major books in the cities, the books that, that, that are represented within the Bible. Aquila and Priscilla, simply because they say yes in their tent making position, create space, and they're available to the mission in front of them, they see cities transformed because of their attentiveness to the mission. And then it says a bit of their biography, because Claudius, the emperor uh, there of Rome at the time, ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to uh, persuade the Jews and the Greeks. And so this is the two words that I would associate with mission, um, and, and really with this symbol that I think that is emerging in the beginning of the chapter of being a tent maker, 
is that a tent maker is like a missionary in the sense that tent makers, because their style of life, are available and accountable to the mission in front of them. Like I have a pair of uh, icy white, they're not as icy white anymore, Nikes that my daughter Rose, she's 16, and uh, tries, it keeps me somewhat hip. I'm not hip at all, but tries to keep me in the loop somewhat. And she gave me these Nike shoes, these white shoes, and I, I'm reminded now of why I don't wear white shoes or I don't get white shoes all the time is because like sometimes when you pick a certain pair of shoes in the morning, it dictates where you can go. Right? Like you put a pair of Jordans on that are $200 and you're just, you're not going to go on a hike. Like it doesn't matter. Your kids are going to go up to Table Rock and you hope they don't get eaten by bears because you're not walking up that hill with a pair of Air Jordans left. That decision that you made to put on the icy weights in the morning is dictating everything else. Right? And so that's, that's the deal here is that what is, it, what, is, what, is, what is God doing and really what is the author Luke highlighting that God is doing in this tent making position? I think he's giving a symbolism here of not just tent-making as a profession, but tent-making as a lifestyle. To set up and build up home that lets me be flexible to go where God's going. I can make decisions in my life, professionally, in terms of budget, in terms of relationship, that don't allow me to go where God is going, that don't allow me to be both available and accountable. And so that's all that's expected, but it's, but it's certainly a big deal when it comes to the um, dictating of, of, of the path of a life. And so tent making becomes the symbol that, that, that carries on through the verse. So verse five says, so Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. So they had split ways. If you remember, Paul was in Athens doing his deal while Silas and Timothy were over here in Macedonia. And so then when Paul goes out to Corinth, they, they, they rendezvous, they come back together in Macedonia. And we know from other books that they don't just come bringing like encouragement themselves. They also bring like funds from Macedonia. Like they raised a bunch of missionary money that came out of Macedonia that uh, Paul is like emotionally encouraged by when he's writing, um, I think it's the letter to the Corinthians, um, that this gift has, has, has made its way back to Paul. And so look what happens to Paul. Like it's between the lines, but Paul is just sparked and invigorated with a new sense of encouragement for mission. It says there, Paul devotes himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, but then they opposed Paul and became abusive. And so he shook his clothes off in protest, and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So that's some pretty strong language there. Your blood is on your heads. You know, He actually says it another time in Ephesus. There's this scene that um, shows us, I think, really the heart of Paul, the heart of a missionary. Paul's on the beach, on his knees in front of the elders, and he's weeping. He's weeping, and he's saying, your blood is no longer on my hands. I preached everything that I could to you. I did everything that I could. I, I took on second jobs, and I, and I, and I went through ship, being shipwrecked, and I did all these you know, things and sacrificed for you the way that Jesus sacrificed for me, and so my, you know, your blood's not on my hands anymore. Okay, so it's two different times he uses this little innuendo, and, and, it, and it speaks to me in, in this way, in the sense that you think about it, the indirect implication there is that by the time he's on the beach to the Ephesians, or by the time he leaves the synagogues here in Corinth, if he's going to make the statement, your blood is no longer on my head or your blood is no longer on my hands, what that implicitly means is that when he entered that synagogue and when he entered that city, he believed that the blood actually was on his hands and on his head. In other words, in other words Paul wasn't just available to what the Spirit was doing. He was accountable to the cities that he was in. So this is the heavy reality. Like my sweetheart Kyra, high school sweethearts, married in 2005, married for 17 years. I, as long as I'm on this earth, will always be, you know, married to Kyra, like Lord prevailing, Lord, Lord willing, Lord prevailing. And she will never have another husband. 
I'm sitting in that seat, right? And so, and so if I choose to be an attentive husband or a distant husband, husband if, I, if, I, if I choose to be a gentle husband or a harsh husband, if I choose to be um, a godly husband or a carnal husband, like, she will never have another husband other than me because I'm taking that spot. I'm sitting, I'm sitting in that spot, and therefore, I'm accountable. There is not going to be another person that's ever going to fill that position. And so there's a level of accountability and responsibility, not for Kyra, but to Kyra, that will always be on my hands. It will always be on my hands. In this church, in this church, there will only be, right, one uh, lead pastor, at least this is the way the governance is set up now, at a time. And therefore, if I'm a biblical pastor or not a biblical pastor, a prayerful pastor, not a prayerful pastor, if I'm a relational and emotionally available pastor or not, you will have one pastor in this church. And therefore, that's on my head and that's on my hands. I'm accountable. I'm responsible. And so furthermore, on the flip side, so it is with every disciple in their city is that there's a level of accountability and a responsibility, not for, but, or not to, but for the city and the, and the circles and the family and the neighborhoods that are around us. If you were to put that circle, let's put the circle back up again, of, um, of people that are in your life, like, your kids will never have another parent if you have any kids. And so their blood is on your hands. You will, by the end of your time with them, either have given everything you have to teach the gospel and preach the gospel and demonstrate the gospel in your home or not. And it will have implications on their life, whether or not you do that or not. It is on your head. It is on your hands. And so there's not just the availability. It's this accountability, this sense of, this sense of not only am I making space, but I'm on the hook. You and me are on the hook. We are accountable to the things that we do and say in those circles. And so whether or not we know we're on the mission doesn't change the fact that we're on the mission. And are we available and accountable for what we're doing there? So this is, uh, this is, this is kind of how that little episode ends up in Corinth, at least the first part of his trip there. In verse 7 it says, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper to God. So now watch this. In verse 8 it says, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul, believed, and were baptized. So the sequence of events is, Paul always goes to the Jew before the Gentile. That's God's plan. Can't get into it. But he preaches first to the synagogue. It says the synagogue abuses him so much that he dusts off his clothes and leaves. But notice this. He goes next door to this Christian guy, um, Titius Justus, and he begins a house church. Where there couldn't have been a synagogue church, he just opts out and he goes to the house church. But watch this, that not only in his, in his going... Is justice in his household led to Jesus, but in his leaving, the synagogue is also led to Jesus, which means that both in the missionary's presence and absence, the gospel is preached. There are ways that you can, you can say a certain phrase, you can ask a certain question, you can make a certain gesture, and, and there are ways that people, while you're in their presence, will reject you, but by the time you leave, there's like a little pebble that sits in their, in their shoe for the next day or the next weeks or the next months, and it'll rub and rub and rub on their heels until not only your presence but also your absence leads to repentance. That you as a missionary, as you come and as you go, and you're coming in and as you're leaving, are influencing the world around you and the spiritual environment around you so much so that your absence is preaching the kingdom, but then, or the presence is preaching the kingdom, but then so is the absence. Which, which brings to a very, very, very important point, a very important point that the most, one of the most important things is, is to know the difference between going and staying and leaving. So, so we're going to get to that right here in, in this next passage right here. So it says in verse 9, One night 
the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. The Lord says, it's like an old school remix. This is like an old covenant throwback. It says, do not be afraid, something he would say to the Israelites a lot. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God. This is how he determines whether or not he's going to stay or go because the Lord spoke to him. It wasn't because of the consequences. It's because the voice of the Lord says, don't be afraid. You're not alone. Keep speaking. So um, I'm a big fan of of music, and uh, I I like uh, uh, grew up in the millennial age. You know, like I'm a Jack Johnson guy and a Coldplay person and, you know, all sorts of things. And so uh, one of the things that I think is highly underrated uh, in songs is the bridge. You know, like the bridge is, is really great because the bridge is like a third, a third theme. You got the chorus, and it's kind of telling you a little bit about the story, and then the, and then the, and then the chorus tells you, you know, like the, the theme of the entire song, but then the bridge gives you like this different angle. Like it makes me think about um, uh, Pharrell's song, Happy, you know, because I'm happy, you know, but I can't remember the words, right? He's talking about how happy he is. I mean, it's a great song. You should be happy. We should be happy because I'm happy. Why? Just be happy, be happy. But then in the, in, 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 in the bridge, you kind of get a peek behind Pharrell. Pharrell's motive there is like why he's happy. He says, you know, this tries to get me down. This, but he says, what? You can't, can't keep me down. Can't keep me down. Can't keep me down. There's a song um, uh, by Coldplay called Fix You. Beautiful song. You know that song? Tears are streaming down your face. And he's fix you. All right? And, um, and so it's like you're sitting there and you're like, trying to decide whether or not you're for this guy or against him. You're like, that sounds kind of codependent. Like, are we really out here just fixing people? Like, is that what he wants you to do? But then he takes you to the bridge. And the bridge is like, I see those tears coming down your face. You know, and he's going on and on and on. And by the time you're like, you're like judging him or maybe like on the fence about him, you're like belting out the bridge by the time it gets to that part of the song because you've been there before and you can relate to the bridge. You maybe don't relate necessarily to the, to the verse of the course, but you can relate to the bridge like, what it means to sit with somebody that's hurting so bad and you just want it to get better for them. That's, I think, what that song, that song is about. You know, or, um, or uh, oh, goodness gracious, I mean, don't even talk about uh, U2, that song that The Edge wrote about his divorce and, like, with or without you. I can't live with or without you. I mean, good grief, I don't even sing it. It's just pins and needles. And so I think that's what this, this is about. Um, this little verse seems to kind of be... Uh, loose in the middle of the run of the, of the narrative. It's up here, you're just doing the ministry, doing the ministry, doing the ministry, and then there's just this prayer. No context. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one's going to attack you. And from there, it doesn't say, like, what happened, or if there was more fruitfulness, or there was a miracle, or whatever. It just said, for a year and a half, Paul just stayed there to teach because of what God said. And so I take it all to say this, is that if every Christian is a missionary, and every Christian is, is, is a witness with a mission, then three of the most important words that we're going to need to know in God's, in God's language and God's word vocabulary is to go and to stay and to leave. Probably one of the three most important words that we'll need to know is to know when God is saying go. Because if we're using the register of it's comfortable or it's working but so-and-so is getting helped or encouraged, like, we're not going to go. And I don't, I, don't think, I don't think this is a dislocated little, like, blurb in the middle of the story. I think it is the story. I think that what made Paul a compelling and, and vibrant missionary is he knew when it was time to go. If they like you, it might be time to go. 
If they don't like you, maybe it's still time to go. Here's, here's what the word was of this one, though, right? Is he was ready to go, like all the, all the ministries happening, right? And I can tell you, you know, you being a leader in your area, me being a leader and a dad and all these things, like things can be going well on the outside. Inside, you're crumbling. You're discouraged. And so the word here isn't to go, actually. The word here, even though because they're violently attacking and abusing, the word's not to go. It's time to stay. And the distance, the difference between you and I continuing in our mission with encouragement or being totally distracted in discouragement is hearing the Lord say, stay. One of the most important things that you need, you don't need, here's the thing that I'm encouraged by. If, if God is telling Paul to not be afraid and to keep speaking and not be silent, what that tells me is that sometimes even the great apostle Paul was scared. Like he doesn't have to tell him to not be afraid if he's not scared, right? And even the apostle Paul at different times when he woke in the morning, just like you and me, because he's got skin and flesh and bones and he didn't want to keep speaking. He wanted to quit. And here's what's encouraging is that he gets up and he keeps on preaching, which shows something about you and me and Paul, is that actually we don't need the Lord to fix all the things that are around us. We need the Lord to speak encouragement inside of us and tell us to stay if it's time to stay. Because if the Lord tells you to stay and they don't like you, what does that matter? Just stay. And lastly, when it's time to leave and it's time to leave, and, and, we'll, see, and we'll see that even in Paul's absence, like in a trail of resurrection power, that even in the places that he leaves, that the trail of resurrection power still leads to repentance and the, and the, and the revival of that synagogue. So in the meantime, now here's, here, here's this third little movement of the passage, and we'll, we'll, we'll close it up. But while this is going on, while uh, Galileo, who was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. And they say, this man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. This is just like a really common collusion in the Gospels and in the book of Acts of the Jewish rulers and the Gentile rulers trying to collude against the gospel. It's the Pharisees and the Pharaohs against Jesus every time. And so it's these, these two heads of state, of the church and of the state, and they're coming together to collusion, and God confuses their plans. Like God's sovereignty is written all over in between the lines that God is ultimately, like we're the ones that's going on the mission, but he's the one that's running the mission. We're the one that's obeying the mission. He's the one that's completing it and seeing it fulfilled. So, so while we're taking care of our, of our circle, the people in front of us, God's taking care of the nations. And, and so it goes on, and this is how it ends up in verse 14. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to him, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourself. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off, and then the crowd there turned to Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. This is a classic example of, of, of of God even using evil and turning evil against itself, that evil judges evil, that gangs judge gangs, that empires judge empires. Like, we're not to get meddled and mixed in the weapons of warfare of this world because we don't fight those types of battles. And ultimately, what we are focused on is not international, you know, politics, but we're focused on neighbors and disciples, is waking up to do the great commandment and great commission is as we are focused and attentive to the mission in front of us, the circle that we can influence anyways, God takes care of everything else that's outside the circle. That if we are attentive and accountable to the, to the people and the mission that is inside of our circle, that God takes care of everything else. And so it, it closes up, and, and he ends his time. This is the very end of, of his second mission trip to Europe here. 
There's only three mission trips in the whole book of Acts, and this is the end of the second one. It says that Paul stays in Corinth for some time, and he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at, uh, I'm going to butcher this, um, Century, uh, because a vow had been taken. You know, here's what I've understood of the revelation of Scripture. I'm still going to be Chinese in heaven, right? Like, we don't lose, we, we, like we change our identity, but we don't lose our ethnicity, and, and, and so, I mean, sometimes I think, I think in becoming a Christian, we, we might use that identity as an escape or an excuse not to be the ethnicity, ethnicity that we are. Like, he's, he's not whitewashing everything and making everything the same color. There's a colorful church that's coming out of this thing. And so even though Paul is not saying for everybody to be circumcised and have their hair cut to be a part of, or not cut to be a Nazarene vow, doesn't change the fact that he is still, he is still, um, acknowledging the cultural heritage that he's coming up with, even though he's coming into the kingdom identity. And so he takes that vow. In verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, because God had told him to go. If God tells him to go, he goes. If God tells him to stay, he stays. If God tells him to leave, he leaves. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail to Ephesus or from Ephesus, rather. Verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. And so here's the thing about, um, let's say, anything in life. If you go to school, let's say from elementary to high school, you're in there for 12 years. I mean, you're there for first grade and second grade and third grade, and you learn all that stuff. And uh, you get up to high school, and you, you, know, you take your chemistry class, and you take your SAT, and you do all that stuff. And then, Lord willing, if you can, you graduate. And, and, and you sit there in that audience, and I don't know if you guys, you know, if you graduated and you went to the graduation, it wasn't during COVID or whatever, and, you know, they, they tell you not for your parents to scream, and your parents scream anyways. And you get up there, I was the very last one, Wong, and so I just pretended like them cheering was all about me, because that's, you know, what a single only child I am. And you walk up there, and you get that diploma, and it's just sort of like bizarre, because like, it's so much time, but then it's just over. Isn't that weird? Like, 12 years of life is wrapped up in one piece of paper and a sweaty handshake from some guy you never talked to before, and then it's just over. And that makes a lot more sense to me of, like, the way that life is and the way that mission is. Like, it doesn't say, well, once he reached, you know, 144,000 and got everybody saved, then he decided the mission was accomplished, he just left. The mission began when God called him to go. The mission continued when God told him to stay. And then when God told him to leave, it was just over. And there is an end. Like, like, the thing about life is, like, I'm turning 40, so you're hearing about it all the time. Like, you can't wait to be 20 when you're 10. That's just the way that it is. You want to, like, dress like you're 20. You want to go to the youth group even though you're six. You know, like, you want to get older. You want to have power. You want to have authority. And then you're 20, and you realize, this isn't any fun. I'm poor, and I don't look as good as these, you know. I need a job, you know, is what you're really saying. So you're like, I can't wait till I get to be I'm 30. Right? And then, and then, and then you, you know, you're, you're working and you're like, man, I'm going to get the dream, get to the top of the mountain, whatever career or financial goals you have or whatever, you get to the goal. And you turn 40 and you're like, dude, that happened so fast. And now it's like over. And isn't that so sad to be like living in a moment but missing it? And that's what this book is saying. Like, you are living in a mission. Are you missing it? Are you missing the people? You're like waiting on the mission. I'm going to be a youth pastor or whatever. You know, I'm going to go and be on a mission trip or one day I'm going to get my marriage figured out and then I'm going to be, it's like, lots of people have done 10s and 20s and 30s and 40s waiting on mission while they're in the middle of one. 
Lots of people are, are, you know, like me, conflict avoidant. You know, you don't want to address. You don't want to challenge anybody. There's going to be a point when you get to, to, to Jesus' feet, and it's going to be this revelation just by the look on his face. Like, I could have lived for the mission of the people you put in front of me, but I spent most of my decades living for my critics. Like, I could have seen my kids raised up in the Lord, but I cared more about what people thought of me because I was living in a mission, but I wasn't living into it. I was right in the middle of a mission waiting for it to happen or avoiding it for happening, being distracted in a hundred different ways, being, you know, a hundred random acts of kindness without actually drawing a circle around my neighborhood, without actually drawing a circle around my family and saying, I'm accountable and I'm available to be a tent maker in this place and to go with God where he's going, to stay where he's staying and leave where he's leaving. And so if I could just put those circles up one more time, this personal mission, this is the mission. If you chose it or not, you got kidnapped, man. You're on the mission. You're, you're a witness. There's a beautiful picture in, in one of the Narnia books where Aslan walks around in, in this little meadow and he starts singing and all of his songs just bring, bring the creation to life wherever he goes. Like that's a powerful image of the gospel. It's also a powerful image of the church that in your going and in your leaving, you are fruitful. You are fruitful and multiplying because Jesus is inside of you in your coming and your leaving, in your coming and your going out. And, and that is the fruit of your ministry. It's not a place, it's a, it's a group of people. So that was my question for you is like, what percentage of your heart and your mind and your strength is being given to the urgent things that won't matter in the end or the important things of mission to your people? These are your people. You are accountable to those people. Their blood is on your hands. We live in a you do you, everybody stay in their lane. That's not biblical. You belong to those people. And Jesus intends on his plans for them through you. Like his plans are, are happening, not around you, but through you. And that's my question is like, what percent of your heart and your mind and your strength are devoted to that mission? Because you'd be living in the middle of mission not, not knowing you're there. Your heart means you, you weep and you laugh with people. What part of your heart is connected to those people that you work with? that you would weep with the things that they would weep about and laugh with the things that they would laugh about. Your mind, a great counselor said to me about your marriage, like, you are a student of the thing you care about most. Like, if you really care about something, you're watching it, and you're fascinated by it, and you're processing it. And so what part of your mind is thinking about the love languages of the people in your small group, considering how to stir one another up in, in love and good deeds, assuming that people are coming in empty, and you're coming into small group prepared that the power of the Lord would fill them up. How much of your mind is dedicated to that? How much of your, of your thinking process is dedicated to that? How much of your strength, if you line up your calendar and your budget, and you actually look at, at mobilized action from a, Stanley, from a family standpoint, how much of your money and your time is budgeted for the mission in front of you? Because usually the sermon's this, get your act together, you're not a good Christian because you don't preach enough gospel to enough people. Guys, the mission is not a guilt trip. It's a gift. Like, if I'm not awake and aware and attentive to Ali, I don't hear his prayer last night. I'm not up there. And that's my mission. That's what I'm called to do. That's who I'm called to be. And so therefore, it's like so much, I think, is robbed of, of, of the church of its inheritance and its power and its authority because it's trying to go find a mission or escape a mission while it's missing the mission that's right around them, that's right in front of them. And so um, 
Maybe you would think about that and consider that, that map ahead of you. What, what is God saying about the people that are in your follower circle, the people you follow with? And what is he asking you to do about it? What is God saying to you about the people you do family with? They're just going to be there for a couple of months. And then the Lord will call them in and out, and there'll be new people. There'll be new people in your group. There'll be new people in your circle, and that'll be a whole other mission. But for now, what's God saying about the people that are in front of you now? And what is he asking you to do about it? What about your neighbors? Those people are going to move in and out. They're going to move to California. Who knows where they're going to move? They're coming in and out, and they'll be different in a matter of months or moments. But for now, if God is telling you to go, then where can you go? And if he's telling you to stay, where are you to stay? And if he's telling you to leave, then if you lose everything, then what's, what's the difference if you leave? What is God saying about the mission in front of you? And what is he asking you to do? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.